Well, friends, welcome back to the podcast. It is a great joy for us to have conversations that we bring to you on anything about the intersection of the spiritual and the practical, about how you can live and lead right side up in an upside down world. Friends, it is a challenge to lead well today. At Stay Forth, we call our coaches and even our experienced curators mountain guides for the leadership journey. Many leaders have invited us into this journey. We love coming alongside and coaching leaders in their leadership to be able to clarify what is overwhelming, what is hard, what is challenging, where do you feel stuck, and how do you go to the next level in your leadership? We want to be on the journey with you. We also love going away and hosting experiences where you can get out of your email inbox, get out of the challenges, the whirlwind, the expectations that you feel each day. Whether you are a stay-at-home dad, a CEO, a music artist, a collaborator of beautiful transformation in the world, a nonprofit leader, you name it. If you have influence, we want to come alongside of you in your journey to be a kingdom leader that lives and leads out of your unique design. You don't have to burn out, flame out, have a moral failure, or live at the risk of your own soul if you are living and leading. Friends, we want to be in the trenches with you. We want to go deeper than these conversations. We've got a couple opportunities for you. The first is our Right Side Up community over on Facebook. We're having great conversations break out there about health and impact. The second is called Tuesday Tune-Up. It's also free. It'll take about five minutes to read through, and it's one practical leadership tweak you can make each week. Friends, this is really good stuff. A lot of this we're getting from our coaching conversations conversations that we're having as a team that we just want to share with you. Friends, your leadership matters too much. If you steward that well, many others around you can grow to their capacity. If you don't steward that well, we see the issues that come up with that, and it can be so dangerous. We just want to remind you, your life and leadership matter too much to lead alone. Don't lead in isolation. We're going to continue to have conversations about health and leadership here, about longevity, sustainability how to live and lead well and with excellence and lead for the long haul. But these conversations alone are not enough. Join the Right Side Up community where you can uh, get to know other leaders each week, be working on your leadership through Tuesday Tune-Up. You can go to TuesdayTuneUp.com or find info in the show notes. You can head over to the Right Side Up community on Facebook or find the link in the show notes. Your leadership matters too much. Don't lead isolated. We are with you for the journey. Friends, it's a great privilege to have these conversations with you. We don't take these lightly. We'll continue to drop these episodes each Tuesday and Thursday. And now, on to the podcast. Oh, Philip, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Alan. Good to be with you. Absolutely. A joy to have you here. I've read some of your books and um, watched some really solid interviews recently, just talking about this moment uh, that we're in. But today, we want to talk about your new book, Where the Light Fell, which is your memoir. So first of all, how was that, zooming out on your own life and retelling your own story? Well, I had to learn a lot. I, as you probably know, write mostly idea-driven books, an issue like relating to God or prayer or grace or the problem of pain, you know, that that's, that's how, what I've done for 40 years. And this book is different. It's personal narrative. I've told stories here and there and dropped them into my book, but never 
the full story of how I grew up and what I emerged from. Uh, later in the in the book, you may have gotten to that point, Alan. I talk about um, how writing a memoir is kind of like trying to put together a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, but you've got no picture on the cover to guide you. Mm-hmm. So you yeah you just look for pieces that fit together, and then once it's all done, then a picture does emerge. And that's kind of how I felt just going back every memory I could come up with in the various stages of my life and my spiritual development, trying to come up with, with a a picture. And I, I found that was a very healthy thing. It was, uh, Oh, it was a calming thing to put together my life, the different pieces. And at the end I could look back and say, even though there were parts of it that I wish had been different at the time, Nothing got wasted. Uh, They all contributed to the person I am now. And um, there it is. It's my life. And it was a discovery process, a healthy one. Sure. Well, talk about your extreme fundamentalist family and background. How did that shape you? At the time growing up, I was a true believer. I believed everything the church said. All the adults around me. kind of said the same thing. And I was in a very church saturated environment. We were trying to be separate from the world. So we were at church three or four times a week. We had revival services. We had summer camps, youth for Christ in high school and never got away from the, from the subculture really. And later I found that they were wrong about some things, some pretty crucial things. It was in the South in the 1950s and in 1960s. And they were explicitly racist. My church refused to allow any African-Americans in. They actually printed up cards. I still have one that says, you're not welcome here. We know you're a troublemaker. You're not really interested in worshiping. And there's no place for you. And they would turn them away at the door. They did change later. They softened a bit. uh, But the church kept declining. And finally, they had a service of repentance and repented for how they had been all those years. But it was too late. The church eventually just kind of dissolved. But what happened, you know, if if the church lies to you or is mistaken about something of importance, then you start questioning everything. So, okay, I discovered they were absolutely wrong about race, that um, the black race was not part of Noah's curse on on his family. They weren't just to serve in the tents of of Shem. That was... um, that was a lie passed on through history. And um, once you have been told a lie like that, you begin to question, what do they, what have they been telling me about the Bible? What have they been telling me about Jesus? So it's important to get our doctrine right and not to speak in ways we don't really know, because if people find out the world is different, as a lot of people have recently, then uh, they just turn away from the church. They think it's not for them. They can't trust it. Hmm. So what changed? When did those cracks or fissures emerge? The racism thing took took a while. I confess, I was born and bred a racist. I, I told jokes against people of color and really believed that they were an inferior race. People nowadays say, what are, what are you talking about, this white supremacy thing? Well, I know very well what, we're, what they're talking about because I was one of them. And I I won a fellowship. I think I was entering my junior year in high school, and I won a fellowship at what was then called the Communicable Disease Center. 
CDC in Atlanta, where Dr. Fauci and all those people hang out. <laughs> and uh, it was quite a prestigious uh, institution back then, as it still is now. And when I um, showed up for work, I knew I was reporting to this renowned PhD in biochemistry. He was going to be my supervisor that summer. I walked in the office and I almost dropped my stack of papers because Dr. Cherry was his name, was African-American. He was a black man. And that went against what my church told me, that African-Americans, people of color, could never be a CEO or a scientist or someone like that. They're good in, in supportive ministries. I mean, it seems criminal even to say these words now, but I was taught that from the pul- pulpit. And I went on to read books like Black Like Me, the story of a white journalist who took some drugs to turn his skin dark. And then he describes the change. This is in Mississippi and Alabama as he's going around on buses, the way he was treated with great respect as a white person. Here's the same person, but with darker skin, treated like a dog, like an animal. Couldn't get a drink of water, couldn't find a bathroom to use, couldn't stay in a motel or restaurant. And I began to see the, the evil, the, the, as well as the lie of racism that permeated the South. It was enshrined in the Jim Crow segregation laws at the time. So that was a crisis of faith for me, a crisis of faith in what my culture had taught me and what my church had taught me. What are some other things that you needed to reconstruct after deconstructing? Wow, that's that would be a good topic for the next book, wouldn't it? Um, um, I would say the biggest thing was to correct my vision of God. Hmm. The view of God that I took away from these tiny little angry churches was of a scowling super policeman up in the sky, just looking for somebody who might be having a good time so that God could squash them. I mean, it was, it was that serious. And we, we were taught to be away from anything that might have any kind of temptation. So don't go bowling. They might serve alcohol in the bowling alley. Don't go roller skating. Looks too much like dancing. You know, it was, it was one of these extreme legalistic churches. Be, be separate from the world. Be different. And, and they created this subculture so that you could be around Christians all, all the day. Well, that was certainly not what Jesus told us to do. He told us to go out and be salt and light and go to the uttermost parts of the earth, spreading the good news that God loves sinners. That's a pretty radical proposition. But that is the heart of the good news. It's not that God loves good people. It's that God loves sinners and wants them to be to be cleaned and wants them to to, to understand the good news and the, the fullness of life that Jesus offered. I saw shrunken people. I saw people who were just trying to grin tightly and get through this life so that they could spend eternity in heaven. Well, eternity in heaven is going to be great, I'm sure, but uh, there's a lot in the Bible about how to live here. <laughs> and And I wasn't very attracted to the view of life the survival view of life that I was getting from my church. So that, that would take some major reconstruction. I think just um, uh, understanding that, that we're, we're a minority, true believers, true followers of Jesus in almost every country throughout all of history have been a minority, but we are to show people a kind of life so that they would say, Oh, I'd like to be like one of those. (laughs) 
that certainly happened when Jesus was here. When Jesus was here, the people who were most attracted to him were the outcasts, the losers, the people who society was judging wrongly. And something about Jesus just attracted. They wanted, they wanted to be around him. They wanted what he had, like the, the woman at the well. I want that living water that you hold out to me and promise. And instead, so often we become, um, how shall I put it? We become like a castle with a moat, with the bridges across the moat pulled mm-hmm. up. You know, yeah. We're trying to protect ourselves and stay away from that world. Well, Jesus was right out in the middle of it. Paul was right out in the middle of it. And I think that's what we're called to do as Christians. And I know the leaders you work with, it's it's tough out there. Um, you're going to be around people who challenge your faith, but that's what we're called to do, to show them a different way, the way that we believe God designed us to, to live in the first place. Mm. What do you want people to remember about your life when you're with Jesus face to face? Several times in the memoir, which was, it's called Where the Light Fell. And I, I took that phrase from St. Augustine, who said, I wasn't able to look at the sun directly, S-U-N, the sun directly, but I could look on where the light fell. And that's really the story of my life. I emerged with this distorted view of God. But then when I, when I experienced common grace, really, uh, through nature, through classical music, through romantic love, I realized that the church had misrepresented God to me, and I wanted to know that God. I, I like to quote this um, line from G.K. Chesterton, who said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a deep sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. <laughs> wow. And that and that's, that's how I felt. And it, throughout my life, because of my background, I've been on a search to separate the the fake from the authentic. Because I learned to fake it growing up in that church environment. I would go forward, I would give my testimony, I would pray, I would do all these things. People thought I was a good little Sunday school boy. And then when it all started to crack apart, I wasn't treated very well. And and then I would see people around me who had that same facade of spirituality, but I had no secrets about them underneath. And just the, the image, people show up at church. How are you today, Mrs. Smith? Oh, just fine. How are you? And, and I'd know, actually, she wasn't fine. Her marriage was falling apart. Her kids were were acting out. And I, when I got to know the Bible, I realized this is the most honest book there is. And we need to start by being authentic and, and honest and vulnerable. And only when we do that can we allow God to come in and and, and fix what needs fixing in our lives. Hmm. What disturbs you about the posture of Christians today? Well, today, of course, everybody would say we live in a very divided time. Many people would say the most divided time since the Civil War. Well, I don't know about that. I lived through the Vietnam era when they would have hundreds of thousands marching in the streets, and there were a thousand bombs going off a year in the United States. You know, it's it's bad now, but it's been bad a lot of different times. <laughs> but uh, the church recently has seemed to plant its flag in the realm of politics. Whenever you do that, boy, warning bells should go off. Just look historically. The closer the church gets to the seats of power, the more problems long-term develop. Because, um, well, you know, Jesus 
and Paul, I, I, I looked through what they said and they just didn't seem all that concerned with the, with the Roman empire. They were concerned with changing hearts. They were concerned with um, a community of people getting together and following God. In the United States, in the last oh, 30, 40 years, it seems like we've expended a lot of energy trying to clean up the culture around us. Well, I think that's a losing proposition, and I just don't see any advice in the Bible on how to do that. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to present an alternative way that attracts people. But the more you become the group in power, politics is an adversary sport. It's not a place where love and grace easily thrive. And um, that really concerns me, both about the style that Christians in politics sometimes use today, and also just about the energy we expend on a few few policies we disagree with, which are important policies. But there's a lot else going on in the New Testament that we ought to be practicing as well. So recently I saw you uh, on an interview uh, with a friend of mine, and there was talk of your flip phone. So tell me a little bit about that. Ha! Well, I'm technologically challenged. We were supposed to be recording this on the internet today, Alan, but um, my internet went down. So we figured um, it out. We adapted. I, we figured it out. And I am actually using my semi smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> my, wife, uh, my wife's iPhone 7 started acting up. And so she traded up to a more recent model. And I got the free iPhone 7. And I think I have two apps on it. Uh, one is the map app and one is the Starbucks app. And uh, that's what I can do so far. But hey, <laughs> I got connected to you today. So that's progress. And that's I'm right. Using a flip phone. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, Grace has changed your life. You've written so much about it. Take us back to some of those moments when you realized that Grace was truly life changing. What were you feeling? What were you experiencing? And what led you to begin to write about it so extensively? When I wrote the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, it actually had a longer title. I, the title that I sent to the publisher was, What's So Amazing About Grace and Why Don't Christians Show More of It? And the publisher said, you know, Philip, you can't get that many words on the spine of a book. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great title, but, though. And I'd want to... Uh, <laughs> Extend that if I could. Yeah. However, uh, what happened, I had been conducting my own little informal survey. And when I was sitting on an airplane or in a waiting room somewhere and had a conversation with a stranger, very often I would say, when I say the word evangelical Christian, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Very often, the first thing that came to mind was anti, anti-abortion, anti gay, anti-science, anti-whatever, anti-sex, or words like um, self-righteous, holier than thou. And not one time, not once did somebody say, oh, those are the people who seem to have more time for you. Those are the people who you want to call when you're in trouble. Those are the people who show grace. And I thought, wait a minute, something's wrong here. <laughs> um, we're like this whole thing of self-righteous. The Christians are the only people 
who, who admit we're not righteous. Everybody else is trying to think I'm better than other people around me. But we know the truth that, that we have no righteousness apart from grace, apart from what God gives us. So that was my concern. And the divisions into, into an emphasis on politics were just starting in those days. This was back in the right around the turn of the century. So I wanted to find out what have we, where have we gone wrong and what can we do about it? So that started me on the, the pathway of grace, and I hope it never ends. What are some ways that we as followers of Jesus can be good neighbors right now? I would say the primary thing is just to be around people who are different than you. Um, the thing about grace, it doesn't take a lot of grace to be around people who are just like you, who vote like you, dress like you, uh, smell like you, enjoy the same things you enjoy. That doesn't take any grace. We we tend to gravitate toward those kind of people because they're easy to be around. And it takes a lot of grace, however, to be around people who who are different than you, who may be morally offensive to you, who who think you're crazy for voting the way you did, who can't possibly understand why you treat your kids in this way. I mean, that's the, that's where grace is put to the test. And Jesus said, um, he said, the real test of love is not how you treat your family. That's easy. Anybody can do that. And I would amend that to say, well, it depends on your family. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But he said uh, the the real test is loving your enemies. And people say, "What? Are you crazy? Why love your enemies? They're enemies. How can you love them? Or why should you?" And Jesus goes on to say in response to his disciples, "Well, that's the way God is. God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike." And the only way that people are going to know what God is like is if you act like God. And I, that's why that's why we're supposed to be crazy with grace. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, just to, to look for ways to to do the unexpected. When you have this one crank in the neighborhood that everybody just avoids because he's going to yell at you when you cross his yard or something like that, take him take her take him a plate of cookies. Invite them out to uh, a play or a concert or something. Those unexpected things. Grace is, you can get along okay without grace. We have justice, we have laws. But grace is like the social lubricant of society. It just makes it a better place to live. And, And Christians do that because we're trying to show the world what God is like. God is not that scowling policeman. God is, is a father scanning the horizon, looking could today be the day my son comes back? Hmm. Last question here, Philip. What are some of your dreams for the church, for the people of Jesus in this next season? I would have to tell you, Alan, that if I only saw the church in the United States, I would be discouraged. I get to travel around the world, been to 85 countries, mostly invited by publishers where my books are published. And I see grassroots evidence of the kingdom of God. 
in the United States, we've been at it so long and, and, you know, if there's a problem like homelessness or something, we appoint a committee to study it and then form a 501c3 organization and elect officers and a board, you know, that's the way we do things in America. In other places like the Philippines or China in the underground church or Africa, if there's a problem, Christians just get to work and start working on it. And that's one reason I'm a sucker for any kid who comes along and says, uh, could you support my my missions project for two weeks? I don't know if we do any good for the countries we send these kids to, <laughs> but we do a lot of good for the kids who go and realize what the world is like and come back and say, church isn't just sitting in uncomfortable seats and uh, singing songs and listening to a talk for an hour and then going home. That's That, that may be what church is, but that's not what the kingdom of God is. And I, I dream of the best thing we have to show the world is like Jesus to care for the needs of the world. And I, and I, everywhere I go, even in the United States, in a large church, there will be a prison ministry. There will be people who look after the homeless. There will be people who staff uh, pregnancy, alternate pregnancy clinics and things like that. And that is what stands out to the world. We're going to disagree on certain fundamental issues about uh, wealth, about sex, about pride, about, you know, some of these, these issues, but we shouldn't be defined by the ways we are different except in being more grace-filled and being like Jesus and reaching out to, to the marginalized and the people who, as Jesus called them, the least of these, my brothers and sisters. If we truly serve, that's the last thing Jesus told his disciples in the upper room. He washed their feet. He said, now go out there and, and love and serve and let the world know you're different because of the way you act. If we did that, boy, I think it would do so much to calm the rhetoric and the divisiveness that the church is a part of in these current days. Well, Philip, thank you for your time today. But beyond that, I'm so encouraged hearing you with a fresh hope and a vision that takes us back to some of the things we've lost, we've gotten distracted from, and uh, been encouraged to watch your life and the way you continue to be obsessed with grace that we need to rediscover. So thanks so much for um, your legacy, your life, your many years of communicating, especially on grace and on your recent book, your memoir, Where the Light Fell. Thanks so much, Philip, for all you do. Well, Alan, I, in some ways I'm, I've been cursed and blessed because I've experienced some of the worst that the church has to offer and some of the best. And I want to give hope to people who maybe turn away from God because of the church. What a sad thing to miss mm. the love and the embracing forgiveness of God because of some bad church experience. There is a way through. And I, I try to be very honest about the flaws of the church in my memoir, but there is a way through and there's a redemptive way. God has promised that he can take even those bad experiences and use them for his good. Mm. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. And this conversation was so rich, so much more we could continue to talk about. Thanks, Philip. My pleasure. Thank you for the time, Alan. <laughs>